You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So I remember this as a Thursday afternoon, and I happened to find myself in the middle of a grocery store. And I have my headphones in, and I noticed someone, and his name is Bill. Not, not this Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Bill was an unbelievably wise man. Uh, he was counseled, he was educated, he loved to sit and read, but he was also a very quiet man. His personality was pretty reserved, and he was somewhat subdued, but he was the best question asker, and he was an unbelievable listener. And there was even a sense of wisdom in his silence. And Bill was in his 50s. He had three of his six kids with him in the store, ages 4, 15, and 19. They had adopted the 15 and 19-year-olds a decade before, and they welcomed these two girls in, one who would be bound to the wheelchair for the rest of her life and also not be able to communicate verbally. And as I ran into Bill, we started chatting, and I was watching him with his three kids, and again, the age gap is is really large. You're dealing with the, the female teenage drama on one end and a kid who keeps screaming for a fruit roll-up on the other end. Um... And as we said our goodbyes, I thought, I'm going to kind of trail Bill. Because I just want to watch a normal grocery store interaction with three very different children with three very different needs and see how it goes. And so I did. And I'm sure that I looked so, like somewhat of a stalker because we had both just arrived at the grocery store. And he was shopping for a family of eight and I was shopping for a family of one. So we were going to be there for a minute. Uh, and quite frankly, nothing unbelievable really happened until we got to the checkout line. And at this point, all three of his kids were pretty annoyed, having been in the Kroger for 30 minutes, and had this older woman walked up to him and says, how do you do it? And he just had that look of like a half-puzzled, half-smile on his face, and he said, do what? And she said, how do you love these kids well? And by the way, I'm literally, it's a true story, I am literally in the bread aisle watching this transpire, thinking, woman, why are you asking such a ridiculous question when you can obviously see his hands are more than full? This is not the time. Um, But he kindly and prophetically said, you know, I don't know if that is the right question. I think it is more, why do I love these kids? And she was left feeling a, a, bit, a, a bit embarrassed at this point, And she said, oh. Uh, and then Bill said, I'll tell you why I love them. Because God loves me. And God loves them. And no joke, the woman said, hmm. I actually believe that you believe that. Bill would be the first person to tell you he is the farthest thing from perfect and the furthest away from Jesus. He's a very self-deprecating and humble man, not looking for attention or admiration. But he was living a prophetic life. He was living a life that provoked questions. He didn't need a ton of words. He didn't need to be the most eloquent or the most articulate. His life just corresponded with his beliefs. And as we continue on in our series through First Peter, the question in front of us is, is your life prophetic? Can someone say of you or can someone say of us, they actually believe that? In theology, they sometimes call this tiered belief, which is what you say you believe. That is your public belief. This is the, um, 
This is the Harvey Weinstein with the Me Too lapel pin at the Women's Rights Gala weeks before he was publicly exposed for abusing and assaulting women. It is a public belief. Then there's what you think you believe. That is the private belief. For instance, if I think I believe that more money does not equal more happiness, but I actually start losing money, and when I do, everything I, I do everything I can to gain more money than what I think I believe is not what I actually believe. And what I actually believe, that is called a core belief. This is typically found out through pain and suffering, what you believe about yourself, what you believe about God, what you believe about the world. That all typically comes out when life is hard. A holy prophetic life is a life where your public belief and your core beliefs are integrated. Where what you say and what you think corresponds to actually who you are and what you actually believe. And so the prophetic life has two phases, and that is the sanctified life and the vindicated life. So I'm going to work through this passage with those two lenses. Peter asked, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. The argument Peter is making here to the church is fairly simple. If you are after good things, then typically you will not be harmed. But he goes on to infer that you might suffer for being about good things, for being about righteous things. So be aware of that, be conscious of that, and do not be afraid, but honor Christ the Lord as holy. And this is one of the key phrases in this section of the letter. The entire premise of his encouragement is that the people of God that are scattered throughout Asia are strangers to this world and they are citizens of heaven. They live and work and play here now. They go to the supermarket, they eat, they share friendships, they work with their hands, they pay taxes, but there is a feeling of alienation, isolation, and estrangement. Who they worship, what they prioritize, how they live runs against the grain of the culture. They are strangers. And the hinge point of living as a stranger on earth and a citizen in heaven comes when you cherish, treasure, and uphold the Lord Jesus as holy. There is a voluntary surrender. God did not make you love him. He loved you into loving him. God does not force you into loving him. He invites you into loving him. He woos you. It is not God's control that leads us to say yes to him. It is his kindness. It is not fear that leads us to open up to Him, but it is mercy. And if we do not recognize that Jesus drew us to Himself with His gracious embrace, then we will seek to control every outcome because we are not convinced that God's kindness will lead people to repentance, but rather our perception for His need of control. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your engagement with the world around you, your conversations at work, your neighborly interactions, your relationships to family members, do we walk into these situations holding Jesus into our heart as holy? One of my mentors in college would say that every time he would be in conversation with someone who had not yet received the love of God, he would have a song in his heart playing as he talked to them. And his song was, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And he said it reminded him so much that Jesus wants to befriend the face in front of him. 
This is just one very small way to honor Christ the Lord as holy. It is difficult to be meditating on Scripture. It is difficult to hold a passage of truth in your heart. It is difficult to be reminded of Jesus' sincerity for the world and hide it. But to do those things while looking into the face of another, there is great authenticity there. And then he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So instead of explaining all what I think Peter is getting at here, maybe a better method would be to give you two stories of living this out, that what it might look like and what it might not look like. And the first is a personal story of missing the point. And the second is a public story of hitting the target. So first, the personal one. A couple of years ago, I had befriended one of our neighbors on the street, and we would regularly go out and grab a beer together. This guy had wrestled with faith for a while, so, so much so that he had seen enough of the underbelly of the institutional church to walk away from it. But he was also familiar enough with it to have an intellectually stimulating conversation that were deeper than skimming the surface of religious jargon. So I found him to be insightful, and I found him to be thoughtful, and I really enjoyed our dialogues. And Some of them circled around the small talk of our neighborhood, but for the most part, they encompassed things of faith, philosophy, good and evil, and some existential questions that he was wrestling with, and I was more than happy to wrestle with him. And so we were sitting at Pretentious Beer having a lively conversation about relativism and logic and the definition of evil, and he looks at me with the sincerest of glances and says, all right, I think you won that one. And immediately I knew something. His perspective was that I had given the impression that I wanted a conversational partner to spar with, not a genuine neighbor that I cared about. No, I said, I think I just lost it. I had given him the impression that this was some type of intellectual boxing match to see who could outwit or outthink the other one, and I had to apologize. And whether it was intentional or not, my first instinct was not to care for this man. It was to convince him intellectually that his logic was faulty. And that was a miss on my part, because even if I believed that his logic was faulty and his premises were off, his comment that I won the conversation only proved that I had not done an adequate enough job in caring for him, only caring about the conversation. An intellectual engagement, which I love, by the way, and believe it is very important, is not enough. To make a defense of Jesus, absolved from caring about the person made in his image, pulls out the rug under the argument altogether. Intellectual engagement can be loving. It can be loving and it can be done in an unloving way. To care about the truth is so important in a world in which there is nothing but relativism that is holding so much of the collective consciousness of our society up. And you can only care about the truth, or as Jesus defined truth, as reality. And you can only care about the person the truth intends to confront or comfort if you too are being comforted and confronted by that truth. And see the truth, which ultimately is found in Jesus, as lovely, and thus see the other person as you see yourself, someone who is made in the image of God, and someone who has not yet recognized the grace that is being offered to them. We don't use Jesus as a weapon, we receive him as a person. 
We receive His correction and His instruction and His mercy and His grace. We receive it all as an act of love. And it is only then that we will be able to engage truthfully with gentleness and respect. The second story is a public story. Shane Winmeyer is a 40-year-old man. He's an LGBTQ activist. He's married to his husband for over 20 years and the executive director of Campus Pride, which is one of the leading organizations around LGBTQ issues pertaining to college students. And back in 2012, his organization launched a campaign worth millions and millions of dollars against Chick-fil-A, given that they had supported anti-LGBTQ organizations. Shane had spent a significant amount of time fueling his anger toward the restaurant, and particularly Dan Cathy, its CEO. And this is his story. On August 10th, 2012, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise call from Dan Cathy. He'd gotten my cell phone number from a mutual business contact serving campus groups. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear me apart, right? Give me a piece of his mind, turn his lawyers on me. The first call lasted over an hour, and the private conversation led to more calls the next week and the week after. Dan knew how to text, and he would reach out to me as new questions came to his mind. This was not going how I thought it would. His questions and a series of deeper conversations ultimately led to a number of in-person meetings with him and representatives from Chick-fil-A. He had never before had such a dialogue with any member of the LGBTQ community. It was awkward at times, but always genuine and kind. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for Campus Pride to stop protesting the business. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns and the real-life accounts from youth about the negative impact that Chick-fil-A was having on campus climate and safety at colleges across the country. Chick-fil-A also provided access to internal documents related to the funding of anti-LGBT groups and asked questions about our concerns related to this funding. An internal document titled Who We Are expressed Chick-fil-A's values, which included their commitment to treat every person with honor, dignity, and respect, including LGBT people. Dan and his family members had personally drafted, refined, and approved the document. And through all of this, Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness, even when I continue to directly question his public actions and the funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and hear my perspective. He and I were committed to a better understanding of one another. Our mutual hope was to find common ground if possible and to build respect no matter what. We learned about each other as people with opposing views, not as opposing people. And during our meetings, I came to see that the Chick-fil-A brand was being used by both sides of the political debate around gay marriage. The repercussion of this was a deep division and polarization that was fueling feelings of hate on all sides. And throughout the dialogue, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my personal life. He wanted to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know where I grew up, about faith, if I had any, my family, even my husband, Tommy. And in return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than a Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. And in that, we had great commonality. We were each entirely ourselves. We both wanted to be respected and for others to understand our views. We were different, but in dialogue, and that was progress. 
Dan is driven by his desire to minister to others and had to choose to continue our relationship throughout this controversy. He had to both hold to his beliefs and welcome me into them. He had to face the issue of respecting my viewpoints in life, even while not being able to reconcile them with his belief system. He defined this to me as the blessing of growth. He expanded his world without abandoning it, and I did as well. And as Dan and I grew through mutual dialogue and respect, he invited me to be his personal guest on the New Year's Eve at the Chick-fil-A Bowl. This was an event that Campus Pride, ironically, and others had planned to protest. Had I been played, seduced into this billionaire's life? No, it was Dan who took a great risk in inviting me. He stood to face the ire of his conservative base and a potential boycott by being seen or photographed with an LGBTQ activist. He could have been portrayed as caving to the gay agenda by welcoming me. Instead, he stood next to me most of the night, putting respect ahead of fear. And there we were on the sidelines, Dan, his wife, his family and friends, and I and my husband all enjoying the game. And that is why building a relationship with someone I thought I would never understand mattered. The millions of college football fans watching the game never could have imagined what was playing out right in front of them. And even as Campus Pride and so many in the community protested this company and its funding of certain groups, the funding of specific groups by CFA had actually already stopped. Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A could have noted this publicly earlier. Instead, they chose to be patient, to engage in private dialogue, to reach understanding, and to share proof with me when it was official. There was no caving. There were no concessions. There was, in my view, great conscience. In the end, it is not about eating or eating a certain chicken sandwich. It is about sitting down at a table together and sharing our views as human beings engaged in real, respectful, civil dialogue. Dan would probably call this act the biblical definition of hospitality. I would call it human decency. So long as we are all at the same table and talking, does it matter what we call it or what we eat? That is an appropriate offense. The gospel confronts. It confronts us all. In, in God's kindness, he leads us to repentance, all of us. But it is the message of the kingdom of God that cuts before it heals, not the messenger. To make an offense is inevitable. The sanctified life means Jesus has confronted you in such a way that has completely reshaped the priorities of your world and those priorities will confront other people. But how we approach our neighbor and how we approach our teammate in the office and how we approach our sibling and how we approach our ideological opponents significantly matters. In many ways, being able to engage with civility and kindness and respect amidst, amidst significant disagreement regarding very intimate loyalties, dignifies someone who is made in the image of God to think for themselves. We are foolish to think we are not going to receive pushback. In Mark 6, it says, Jesus came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? 
And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Just think about this for a minute. God, Yahweh, the most beautiful, wonderful, perfect, majestic, loving being, came in a way that all of us could relate through the womb of a woman. And he came to caringly, honestly, truthfully, truthfully love us and make us like him. And we killed him. That happened to the Son of God. Pushback is inevitable. And I hesitate to say this too strongly, but I do believe it's worth saying, if you have never received authentic pushback regarding your reoriented lifestyle because of your devotion to Jesus, then might it be possible that your lifestyle is not that much different than your neighbor who does not know Jesus? And of course, this is not an excuse to start picking fights and pursuing conflict, but do pursue others. And in pursuing others, your life will brush up against theirs. And is that life that brushes up against theirs prophetic? Does your life invite potential intrigue and genuine curiosity? Is your life an imperfect, living, breathing script of what it means to love Jesus and have him wreck your entire lifestyle for his name's sake? And before we move on, don't miss this. Jesus says that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. And he says this to a bunch of skeptical religious people who want to dismiss that God has come in their midst. In this particular instance, his clapback is not to the culture, it's to the established Jewish community. It's to the church of his day. And in a place like Knoxville, I firmly believe that a prophetic life is going to speak to both the culture around us and the church among us. The amount of people that I know that have done seemingly crazy things for the Lord, that are socially ostracized from their faith communities that they grew up in because of the way they follow Jesus are equally as real as the social isolation that comes from the culture at large. In fact, in my experience, it is actually more prevalent to get pushback from people who claim the Christian faith and who claim cultural idols. So we have a sanctified life and then we have a vindicated life. The announcement of the kingdom and the first fruits of the kingdom are not merely that God died, but that God rose and that God reigns. The resurrection is the first signpost that this world in its current form is being remade and it's being redeemed. The kingdom's advance is set in motion by a Galilean man marching out of a graveyard. We should be the last people to sulk back in fear and we should certainly be the last people to be apathetic. But we also ought to be the last people on earth to uncritically laud any political leader or movement as though this was the Messiah we have waited for. We need leaders, good ones we prefer, but we do not need a Messiah. That job is filled and he is feeling fine. We are neither irrationally exuberant nor fearfully isolated. We recognize that from Golgotha to the end of the age, there will be trouble in our culture, in our communities, even in our own psyches. And we groan against this and work to hold back the consequences of the curse. This is not a call for us to put our hands under our knees and whistle on by, but it is a call not to despair. We are the future kings and queens of the universe. And so we fight, but not with weapons of military war, but with the same weapons that Jesus fought with, enduring, suffering, love. 
And we know that enduring suffering love has earthy consequences at times. Peter says, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It's worthwhile to consider if I'm never having to make a defense, if I'm never finding myself in conversations and in relationships about gospel hope, about the removal of shame, about freedom from sin, about Jesus, is my life provoking questions? Leslie Newbegin says, live in the kingdom in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. That is a thesis statement for life. And what is that gospel? What is that hope? Peter says in the next verse, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, as a little aside, there are a ton of scholars who believe this is one of the more confusing and confounding scriptures in the whole of the, of the New Testament. And though I am a seminary student, I do not have a degree yet. And though I love reading, I do not have the credentials to speak with authority on this particular text. I can tell you that there are three main or three popular interpretations of this text. And they go like this. The first interpretation understands spirits as referring to the unsaved of Noah's day. So Christ in the spirit proclaimed the gospel through Noah. And the unbelievers who heard Christ preaching through Noah did not obey and are now suffering judgment. The reason this view has validity is Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness in his second epistle. Peter says the spirit of Christ was speaking through Noah as an Old Testament prophet. And the context indicates that Christ was preaching through Noah, who was in a persecuted minority, and God saved Noah, which is similar to the situation in Peter's time. Christ is now preaching through Peter, and his readers are a persecuted minority, and God will save them as he has saved Noah. That is one interpretation. The second interpretation are the spirits are fallen angels who were cast into hell to await final judgment. And the reasons supporting this are some interpreters say that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are angels who sinned by cohabitating with human women. And also, almost without exception, in the New Testament, spirits refer to supernatural beings rather than people. And the word prison is not used elsewhere in the Bible as a place of punishment after death for human beings, while it is used for Satan and other fallen angels. In this case, the message that Christ proclaimed is almost certainly one of triumph. And in the third view, which has by far the least evidence, some have advocated the idea that Christ offered a second chance of salvation to those in hell. This view does not hold nearly as much water as there's biblical and theological evidence that is in direct contrast to this, but nevertheless, it is a view that is held. Martin Luther, one of the founders of the Reformation, says this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. 
The passage assumes a familiarity with images and traditions that are very alien to our modern culture. There are some um, what scholars call lexical difficulties, meaning there's some grammatical ambiguity in the text that makes it very difficult to interpret clearly. But here is the crux of the passage. It functions as a word of encouragement to Jesus' followers, oppressed by the powers that oppose them. It is a proclamation of victory because it says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. Vindication means that the chaos that is in our world, that the chaos even within our homes does not have the last word. That powers and authorities that provoke the chaos that we've seen since the garden are subject to the gardener. When we witness the devastating effects of disease, the gruesome images of violence, we experience systemic annihilation of people groups, we hear of how addiction can wreck the lives of individuals, and we see how sin affects entire family lines. We have come to believe that it's not just random people making unwise choices, but there is a power behind these things. We call it evil. The scripture is much more acquainted with spiritual evil and spiritual authority than we are. And so this is a reminder to the strangers of this land that Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension is the final stamp that all evil will hang on the gallows. The death of Jesus is the first death of death. And Paul, writing to the churches in Rome, says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What a wildly paradoxical statement. You would think it would say the God of strength will soon crush Satan or the God of mighty power will soon crush Satan or the God of invincibility will soon crush Satan. It says the God of peace. The doctrine of our union with God being joined with him, he taking on our sin, we taking on his righteousness, he receiving the punishment of divine justice, we inheriting the kindness of divine favor. Our union with God, the God of peace, means that Satan the father of lies, the one who is roaming around like a lion seeking to destroy us will be crushed under your feet. He is not only crushed under God's feet, but ours. Because God is victorious, we are victorious. The prevailing narratives of our life, the inherent guilt we will not shake, the lies we believe, the amount of Injustice across ethnic and economic lines around the world, the unjust persecution of Christians throughout the globe, school shootings, sexual exploitation of kids happening right here at the intersection of 40 and 75. All of that is evil, demonic powers manifested through sinful, broken people, broken institutions, and deformed ideologies. That's the bad news. But the good news is that Colossians says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Our job is not to defeat the enemy. The enemy is defeated. Our role is to speak and act and walk in the world in such a way that makes known a reality on earth that is already a reality in the heavenlies, that God reigns. And that His reign has come down in part in Jesus, 
and is currently coming down in part through us and will fully come down when he returns. And to a suffering minority in a little outpost of Asia, Peter is reminding them their life will be vindicated. The tomb and the ascension are proof. Our life will be vindicated. The tomb and the reigning of God is proof. No suffering, no hardship, no slander, no amount of isolation will go unredeemed. God is at work and He will vindicate us. He will vindicate you. Let's pray. Lord, as we experience some of the beat-downness of life, remind us to both persevere and endure, but also remind us that we will be vindicated. That you are reigning even now. And you are coming back for us. And so help us, God, live as a prophetic minority. In our little corner of the city. Give us courage, wisdom, winsomeness, and conviction. Overpowered by the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.